The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 1. Psalm 1, a very familiar psalm, but it will be good to have it fresh on our minds as we go to the New Testament text, which is our sermon text, Luke 6, 46 through 49. Psalm 1 and Luke 6, 46. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let us go now to Luke 6 and read verses 46 through 49, our sermon text. Here Jesus brings his sermon on the plain to a conclusion by saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This this now the reading of God's most holy word, and we do pray that he would add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. You probably have noticed in, in your time Uh, in the church, that preachers often conclude their sermons by delivering some kind of exhortation to the congregation to obey or apply what has been taught. Uh, Sometimes those exhortations are long, sometimes they are brief, but I think most preachers do this. They teach God's Word and then they exhort the congregation to move on in obedience to what they have heard. There are good reasons for this, the most obvious being that God's Word is always to be obeyed. In fact, we are warned in the Scriptures about the danger of hearing God's Word and yet not doing it. We are to be doers of the Word, to use the language of James. It is to be believed in the mind, it's to be cherished in the heart, but those with a true and lively faith are to strive to live in obedience to the Scriptures, in thought, in word, and in deed. God's Word is to be applied. It is to be put into practice. That is the point. And you will notice that Jesus really does set the example for us in this, for He concludes His Sermon on the Plain with a call to obedience. In this sermon, Jesus calls His disciples to perceive that they are blessed in Him, even if they suffer in this world. He has called us to love our enemies and to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. He has called us to avoid a judgmental and condemning attitude, uh, the kind of attitude that is so common amongst religious people. 
and to forgive and treat others with generosity. Jesus calls His disciples to be merciful, gracious, and kind, for God is merciful even to those who hate Him. And He has certainly been gracious to all who are in Christ Jesus. He has forgiven us all of our sins, and so we are called by our Lord to forgive as we have been forgiven. And I think you would agree with me that these ethical teachings of Jesus that we have encountered in His Sermon on the Plain, they are challenging. They, they do run counter to our sin nature, don't they? In, in our flesh, we tend to want to hate our enemies and to, to get back at those who have done, done us wrong. But Jesus is here calling us to live a different lifestyle. He is here calling us to take a different mindset And these are challenging teachings, but Christ insists here that His followers obey Him. We are to obey God's moral law in thought, word, and deed. And we are to adopt this mindset and attitude that is here prescribed in the Sermon on the Plain. But I want you to pay very careful attention to this. Jesus is not interested in having disciples who merely listen to Him. He is not interested in having disciples who merely listen to Him. In fact, this kind of struck me as a point of application for preachers. What Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Plain, it reveals that He was not interested in having a great multitude follow Him. For what He says would surely drive some of them away. He is more concerned with having true disciples. Not men and women who would merely listen to Him, but men and women who would follow Him truly who would live in obedience to what He commands. I want you to notice the question that Jesus asks at the very beginning of this conclusion to His sermon. Verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? The tone, I think, is rather confrontational. Perhaps you would agree with me on that. And so I ask, why this confrontational tone? Why does Jesus look out upon the the multitude and say to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Well, I think we must consider Jesus' audience again and the setting of this sermon. Jesus had just named His twelve apostles. Uh, There were others who were following Him too. In fact, Luke tells us that it was a great multitude that gathered around Him to hear His teaching and to be healed by Him. You can look at Luke 6, 17-19 to be reminded of that. And without a doubt, this was a mixed group. What did most of them share in common? They were at least interested in Jesus. They had come to hear His teachings. Most of them probably claimed to be His disciples or followers. Evidently, many of them, if not all of them, were calling Him Lord. They were, they were referring to Him as Lord But there must have been some diversity. I'm sure that there were differing levels of understanding, differing levels of commitment amongst this multitude. Some were well aware of who Jesus was and what He required of them, and they were, we might say, all in. They were committed. They were true disciples of Jesus. But others were undoubtedly ignorant and uncommitted. Some, I'm sure, were present on that day only because They wished to be healed by Jesus so that they might benefit from Him in an earthly way. And some were present only because they were curious to know what this Jesus was all about. In fact, we know that this was a mixed multitude because Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve. And Luke has already warned us that he would become a traitor. This he said in Luke 6.16. 
And so Judas would, in the course of time, prove that he was no true follower of Jesus, but he was what we would call a false professor. He was someone who made a profession of faith. He claimed to have Jesus as Lord. He claimed to be a disciple of Jesus. And he certainly appeared to be for quite some time. But he proved himself to be a traitor. He fell away in the end and even betrayed Jesus the Lord. And so Jesus spoke very directly to this mixed multitude. He warned them. From the beginning of His earthly ministry, after calling them to Himself, He warned them to have, that to have Him as Lord and Savior would involve living in obedience to Him. True disciples of Jesus will strive to keep Christ's commandments. They will strive to live in obedience to the moral law of God. They will also strive to obey these ethical teachings of our Lord, uh, which He delivered there in that level place And of course, these in no way compete with the moral law, but are a true and pure application of the moral law to the minds and hearts of those who follow Jesus. The question that Jesus posed to His listeners, I think is itself powerful, rhetorically speaking. The question itself could just stand alone in some ways. Uh, Listen again to what Jesus says. He, He asks, "'Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you?' And this question, all on its own, does highlight the absurdity of calling someone Lord and yet not obeying them. To call someone Lord with no intention or effort to obey them is a contradiction. It is is an act of hypocrisy, is it not? For lords are to be obeyed. To have a Lord is to have someone that you are to submit to. It is to have someone that you are to to obey. And so those who do this, who call Jesus Lord and yet do not obey Him, are rightly called liars and hypocrites. Jesus is certainly Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord in that He is a master to be obeyed, and more than this, He is the Lord, that is to say, the Lord God Almighty, come in the flesh. Luke has carefully established this fact in his gospel already. Uh, We should not forget it. Uh, First, he uses the title Lord to refer to God in his gospel. This he does many times in the early chapters of this gospel. For example, in Luke 1.6, Luke speaks of Zechariah and Elizabeth as being righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So there Luke uses the word Lord to refer to God. In 1.16 it is said of John the Baptist that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So then we are to see that God is the Lord. Next Luke shows us that Jesus Christ is the Lord. For example in Luke 1.43 Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. Jesus is the Lord come in the flesh. In Luke 1.76, it is said of John the Baptist that he will be called the prophet of the Most High, for he will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And indeed, this is what John the Baptist did in his ministry. He went before the Lord, that is to say, before Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, to prepare the way before him. And in Luke 2.11, the angel of the Lord spoke to the shepherds in the field, saying, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It is 
a magnificent title that is applied to Jesus Christ repeatedly in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is Lord, but He is no ordinary Lord or Master. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord God of Israel incarnate. And Luke demonstrates this to us. And so here, when we come to this text, we must keep all of these things in mind. Jesus is the Savior of all who come to Him by faith. But brothers and sisters, you must know this. To have Jesus as Savior, you must have Him as Lord. This is what Paul says in Romans 10, 9-10. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But what is it that we confess? What is it that we must believe and confess before men if we are to be saved, according to Paul and the rest of the Scriptures for that matter? We must confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord God Almighty incarnate, and He is our Lord. If we are to have Him as Savior, we must have Him as Lord and lords, brothers and sisters, are to be obeyed, especially this one. So then, it is a, so then it is a great contradiction, isn't it, to call Jesus Lord and yet have no intention or to make no effort to obey Him in our way of life. It's a contradiction, it's an act of hypocrisy, it is what we would call a false profession. Those who call Jesus Lord with their lips but deny Him with their life should not be confident that they have Him as Savior, therefore, as the rest of this passage makes very clear. I have said that the question Jesus asks is powerful in and of itself, for it reveals the absurdity of calling Jesus Lord while not obeying Him. Lords are to be obeyed, that's the point. But Jesus sharpens this point through the use of of a pair of similes. A simile is a figure of speech that compares one thing with another. And we find two of them here in this passage. And uh, these similes do really sharpen the point that is being made. Uh, these are powerful images that are set before us here in the remainder of the passage. In Luke 6.48 we read, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. So did you notice uh, the, the, the threefold description of, of this one? He says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And so here is the first of two similes. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. So here Christ describes what someone who makes a true profession of faith is like. The person who, one, comes to Christ by faith, two, hears His words or His commandments, and three, obeys them, is compared by our Lord to a house that is well built, with a foundation that is strong and deep, able to endure even floodwaters. Now in this simile, the house itself represents the very life of a person who has made a profession of faith. 
the digging down to the bedrock so that the foundation of the house is set on something firm and immovable represents a true and authentic faith in Christ. A faith that is accompanied by sincere repentance and heartfelt obedience. And we might ask, what then does the flood represent? And we should notice two things. One, the flood waters represent the trials and tribulations of this life, even persecutions. Two, the flood waters represent the final judgment. All will stand before God in the end and be judged by Him. The flood waters represent the final judgment. And so, how will it go for the person who has true faith in Christ? How will it go for the one who has made an authentic profession of faith that is accompanied by obedience to the commandments of Christ? How will it go for the one who has Jesus as Lord and truly Lord? For they do in fact obey Him. How will it go for these when the trials and tribulations of life beat against them? What will become of their profession of faith? We must say it will stand. It will stand. For it is true faith, grounded in Christ as Savior and Lord, that they have. And how will it go for the one who has true faith in Christ on the day of judgment? Again, I say it will stand. Uh, these who have made a true profession will stand on the last day. They will stand not because they are righteous in and of themselves. They will stand, though, because they stand on Christ and have His righteousness as their own. That is why they will stand in the judgment. And what are those who hear Christ's words but do not obey them compared to? Christ compares these to a house with no foundation at all. And we are told that this house will surely fall. Look at verse 49. But, so there is a contrast here, but the one who hears Christ's words and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. One thing to notice about the comparison that Jesus makes between the two houses is that they look the same, or at least similar, on the surface. If I were to show you a picture of two houses, one with a deep foundation set down upon the bedrock, and the other without any foundation at all, you would probably not be able to tell the difference between the two houses. Uh, for they would look the same on the surface, wouldn't they? A picture would not reveal what's going on beneath the surface. You would see only the house as it rests upon the ground. Yes, the one has a deep and well-laid foundation, the other has none at all, but you would not be able to perceive that if I were to show you a picture of the two. They would look the same on the surface. But there is in fact a great difference between a house with a solid foundation and a house with no foundation at all. You know this. You don't even need to be a, a contractor to know this. There's a great difference between the two. And you would quickly see the difference between the two when? When would you notice the difference between the two? The answer is when the floodwaters come to beat against that house. It would very quickly become evident which of these was well built with a solid foundation in which one had no foundation at all. The one that is built atop a deep and firm foundation will not be easily moved, but the one that lacks a foundation will quickly begin to crumble and it will be swept away. So you can see here 
that Christ is warning His audience. He is warning His audience, and even you and me today, of the possibility and great danger of making what is called a false profession of faith. It is possible, and we might even say it is common, for men and women to make a profession of faith that is false. And He is here calling those who hear Him to respond with true faith, which will always involve true repentance and a striving after an obedient and holy life. So here we have a warning delivered to us. And there are many other such warnings found in the pages of Holy Scriptures, brothers and sisters. This is something that the people of God are often warned about. Uh, Be sure that you have an authentic faith in Christ, not one that is false, not one that is only surfacy, you see. And one of the ways that we know if our profession of faith is true is if we actually obey Jesus, whom we call Lord. To call Jesus Lord but to not obey Him is an empty and false profession of faith. Again, I say to you, Lords are to be obeyed. And if you were to have Jesus as your Savior, you must have Him as your Lord, for He is the Lord of glory. To call Jesus Lord but not obey Him is an empty and false profession. It's a contradiction. It's an act of hypocrisy. And those who make such a false profession of faith, notice this, they will look just like those who make a true profession for a time. Both will call Jesus Lord for a time. Both might walk in the company of Jesus' disciples for a time. But the difference between the true believer and the false professor will become apparent when the flood waters come, and they will certainly come. They will certainly come. When the trials, tribulations, and persecutions arise, those who have made a false profession will fall away. And certainly the house of every false professor will be swept away on the day of judgment. And the ruin of that house will be very great, Christ says. But those who have true faith, those who have dug down deep to build their life on the bedrock of Christ Jesus, the Lord, will stand. Again, I say they will stand not because they are strong in and of themselves, not because they are righteous in and of themselves. They will stand because they have truly built their lives upon the bedrock, which is Christ the Lord. And they trust in His righteousness imputed to them. They have had their sins washed away by Him, through faith in Him. And so I do wonder, how many of those gathered around Jesus to hear His sermon on the plain were true disciples of His, and how many were false? I wonder. It's impossible to know, of course. It's impossible to know for sure. One thing we do know is that there were times in Jesus' earthly ministry when great multitudes followed Him, Here, in this text, he had a great multitude around him. I remember also the story where a great multitude followed him out into the desert. And Jesus fed them uh, with with bread, miraculously. Uh, But they soon fell away. In the end, very few stood with him around the cross. Even some amongst his band of apostles kept their distance, didn't they? And so Jesus at times had a great multitude around Him, but when, when the, the heat was turned up, when the trials and tribulations of life uh, came, many did abandon Him. 
Uh, we see this clearly in, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, of course, in the, the book of Acts, we see evidence of this kind of thing as well. I've already mentioned Judas. We know that he was a false professor, and yet he was one of the twelve. Have you ever wondered why the Lord allowed this? To have one amongst the twelve who would betray him? What, what was this about? Could not Jesus have selected for himself twelve men who were authentic? Uh, did he not know that Judas would betray him? Of course he did know. And yet the Lord determined to do things this way, that there would be one from even amongst the inner, inner band of Jesus' disciples who would betray him. I think it is to show us that uh, the church will always have false professors in her midst. We know this is true, that Judas was not a true follower of Christ. He was a false professor. He was one who would betray him in the end, show himself to be a traitor. He was, to use the language of our text today, a house with no foundation at all. And the floodwaters did sweep him away. They swept him away, I think, because... Over time, Judas began to realize that Christ did not come to establish an earthly kingdom now where he would have glory and honor for himself. Instead, Jesus began to speak more and more of his own suffering and the suffering that his disciples would have to endure. And as the cross, as the trial of the cross drew near, Judas thought, this isn't what I signed up for. And so he decided to benefit himself the best he could by selling Jesus for a bag full of money. He proved himself to be a false professor. He was swept away. Now contrast Judas with Peter, who would become the leader of the apostolic band. We know that Peter was not perfect. In fact, he stumbled very badly. For a time, it looked like he too had fallen when he denied his Lord three times on the night of his trial, the night before his crucifixion. But we know that Peter stood in the end. And I ask you, why did Peter stand? Why was his house not swept away? He stood because his profession of faith was rock solid and true. He stood because Jesus was truly his Savior and Lord. He stood because Jesus Christ made him stand. That is the answer. Peter was an imperfect man. He was imperfect just like we all are imperfect. But his profession of faith was rock solid. It was true. He stood because the Lord made him stand. Now let us picture the church today. Here I am referring to the many thousands of visible churches that are scattered throughout this nation and world. Churches just like this one here. These churches, they are made up of people who call Jesus Lord with their lips. And I do wonder how many of these are houses with a firm foundation and how many are foundationless. And truly only God knows and truly, time will tell. But between now and the day of judgment, the question of Jesus must be raised. And it must be pressed upon the visible church, the people of God. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? The people of God need to be confronted with this message, do they not? They need to be challenged with this. And they need to be warned to not be false professors, but to have true faith, which will always be accompanied by obedience. And so, ministers of the Word must be faithful to put this question before the people of God even today. 
This warning must be delivered. They must be challenged. All of us must be challenged. We must be reminded that to have Jesus as Savior, we must have Him as Lord. And lords are to be obeyed, especially this Lord, for He is the Lord of glory. I do hope that the meaning of this passage is clear to you by now. I want to offer a few contemplations on this text before concluding the first and most obvious question that I must ask is, what about you? Is Jesus truly your Lord? Have you come to Him in faith? Have you heard His words and commandments, and are you obeying Him? Have you turned from your sin to walk in new obedience? Now, the question on the minds of many, and I think I can feel the question. I can't hear it, but I think I can feel it in the room, you see. As this teaching is being presented, I think the questions on the mind, the minds of many will be, what is meant by obedience? Can we please define obedience or describe this obedience? Because I think all of us, if we were honest, would be willing to admit that we do not always obey the Lord as we should. Those who know God's moral law, who understand the teachings of Jesus concerning what that law requires and forbids, and who have a clear view of themselves, will readily admit that they do not obey Christ perfectly, but do daily violate His commandments in thought, word, and deed. In fact, we have confessed this together earlier in our worship service. Brothers and sisters, have you, con- have you kept this law, the moral law, perfectly? You all said, along with me, no, we have violated it in thought in word and in deed. So no one obeys Christ perfectly, friends. We can agree about that, I think. In fact, did not Christ just warn us about seeing the specks in the eyes of others while not seeing the log in our own eye? So clearly, Jesus expects that His disciples will continue to struggle with sin. Uh, they will need to deal with, with planks of sin and specks of sin uh, throughout the Christian life. The context itself makes Uh, This clear, as do the rest of the Scriptures. True Christians, even the very best of them, are imperfect in this life. We must continually war against sin, but we do not always win. So what is meant by obedience? Or to put it another way, if it is true that disciples of Jesus will war against sin all the days of their life and will reach perfection only in the life to come, then what distinguishes the true and the false believer as it pertains to obedience. If it is true that the people of God are still struggling with sin and still fail, then what really distinguishes the true and the false believer as it pertains to the obedience that Christ here demands? There are five things that come to mind. They're all brief points. Please listen to them carefully. Firstly, a true follower of Christ will turn from sin and to obedience initially. That is to say, from the beginning. That is why faith and repentance are often mentioned together in the Scriptures. To turn to Christ savingly involves turning from sin initially, stated negatively. No one should think that they have Jesus as Lord and Savior if they will not turn from their sin in the beginning. Secondly, a true follower of Christ will turn from sin and to obedience intentionally. And by this I mean that true disciples of Christ will intend to not sin further. And they will intend 
to obey Christ from that day forward. This will be the intention of their heart. Sincerely, they will long to obey their Savior and Lord, stated negatively. No true disciple of Jesus has this attitude. I am forgiven. It does not matter if I sin. In fact, I plan to go on sinning because after all, Jesus is my Savior. I prayed a prayer and all is well with the world so I can now indulge in this sin and that and please the flesh because of the grace of God. Let's talk about the grace of God. No true disciple of Jesus, no one who really has Him as Lord and Savior, has this attitude. They do not have this intention to go on in sin, but do truly intend in the mind and the heart to live in obedience to their Savior and Lord. If that is your attitude and your intention, then I doubt that Jesus is really your Lord. And if He is not your Lord, then He is not your Savior. Thirdly, when true disciples of Jesus do sin, they will do so sorrowfully. God disciplines His children. The Spirit convicts those who belong to Him. Those who love Christ sincerely will be grieved when they have sinned against Him. Stated negatively, false professors will care little about their sin. They may be concerned about the consequences of their actions. You know, yes, I have done this bad thing and and now I see that it's going to impact me negatively. Because I have done this bad thing, I may uh, have a broken relationship here or I might lose my job here or others might think badly about me and I am really sorry and sad about that. I am really sorry and sad about the fact that I am going to be impacted negatively. But that is not how a child of God sees things. A child of God sorrows over their sin because they have sinned against their Lord, you see. There is a great difference between worldly sorrow or grief and godly sorrow and grief. A true disciple of Jesus will be grieved because they have sinned against their God and they have sinned against their Lord and Savior who bled for them, you see. So, true disciples of Jesus, when they do sin, they will do so sorrowfully. In fact, it's good that we read that text from from the psalm earlier in preparation for uh, the the silent confession of our sins. Uh, Do you remember how David in that psalm Uh, said he felt in that period of time after he sinned and before he repented, he described himself as being miserable, in a miserable condition. And that is how it is for the people of God when they sin. There is a sorrow that comes over them. There is this true and authentic conviction that the Spirit of God brings uh, to our hearts. And this will be true of all who have Jesus truly as Lord. Fourthly, true disciples of Jesus will turn from sin and walk in obedience habitually. And so, they will turn from sin into Christ initially. They will do so intentionally with the intent to obey. They, when they do sin, there will be sorrow involved. The fourth point is this. True disciples of Jesus will turn from sin and walk in obedience habitually. 1 John 3, 6-11 says this very clearly. Listen to what the Apostle John says on this point. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. Did you hear it? No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, 
as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That is very clear. A person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, but practices wickedness or has a habit of sinning, ought not to be sure about the fact that they have Jesus as Lord at all. They should be plagued by doubt. It would be right for them to be plagued by doubt. And being plagued by that doubt, they ought to turn from sin authentically into Christ as Lord authentically. Uh, This is right. But those who make a practice of living in obedience to the commandments of Christ ought to be reassured that in fact they do have Jesus as Lord. We will come to that point in just a moment. So then it is not about perfection, but it is about habit or practice, as this text from 1 John 3, 6-11 through has just said. The true disciple of Jesus will turn from sin and obey Christ the Lord habitually. Fifthly, the true disciple of Jesus will grow in holiness progressively. Uh, and by this I simply mean that they over time will mature. They will over time put sin to death and walk in the ways of Christ more and more. This process of turning from sin and learning more and more to walk in obedience to the Lord is called sanctification. To be sanctified is to be set apart and made holy. God sanctifies all who are united to Christ by faith, and all who are united to Christ by faith are called by God to progress in their sanctification. You see, so it is God's work by His grace in us. It is a work that we also are to partake in. I, I want to read what our confession of faith says about sanctification. It's so very helpful. It's so very clear. And if you listen to this reading uh, carefully, you will hear support for everything that I have just said about obedience. I want you to listen, as I have said, to chapter 13 of our confession, which is entitled, Of Sanctification. Paragraph 1 says, They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated. Okay, if I could use the the language of our sermon for today. Those who are true followers of Jesus, those who are really His disciples, who have been born again, who have Him as Lord and Savior. I'll continue quoting now. Having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. It's a wonderful statement, a general one about sanctification. It is teaching that all who are truly Christians will progress in their sanctification. They will be sanctified by the Lord. They will grow in in holiness. They will learn to mortify the flesh uh, more and more throughout their life. And that last little phrase, without which no man shall see the Lord, referring to true holiness, should get our attention. That principle is drawn from texts like the one that we are considering today. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
uh, those words of Christ should ring in our ears. Paragraph 2 says, This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, meaning it touches every part of our being, our mind, our will, our affections, and it's manifest through our bodies, through our words and actions. It is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. You have experienced this war, haven't you? I have experienced this war. I still have to deal with this, the, the sinful corruptions that remain within me. I'm tempted by the world. Um, and there is this war that takes place constantly. My, my spirit, my soul says, I want to obey the Lord. I intend to obey Him. I love my Lord and Savior. I want to obey His law perfectly. And yet I find this constant struggle taking place within the Christian life. It's common to all of us. And I do so appreciate that our confession of faith admits that though this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, it is yet imperfect in this life. Paragraph 3. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in His word hath prescribed to them. So this third paragraph does teach that those who are true disciples of Jesus will experience growth. They will experience more and more victory in this war until the Lord returns. And I do love the fact that our confession concludes this paragraph with a reference to Christ as King. He is King. He is Lord. And He is to be obeyed. What a beautiful statement this is. It's true. It is true. All who are united Christ by faith, all who have been effectually called and are regenerated. By the way, regeneration has a lot to do with everything we're saying. Why is it that you cannot continue to live habitually in sin without any care? Why? Because you have been born again. God has given to you a new heart. He has written His law on your heart, you see. He has renewed you in the mind. He has renewed you... In the heart, He has renewed you in the will. Your affections have been changed by the Lord because of Christ Jesus. You see, you have been made new. And so you will not be able to persist in sin habitually and not care about it. Because that is now contrary to your new nature in Christ Jesus. Before, you could live in sin and not care because you were dead in your sins. And your nature was thoroughly corrupted And you are in bondage to sin, but you have been set free, you have been made new, you have been regenerated, and so you cannot continue in sin and not care. For to do so would be contrary to your identity and your your condition in Christ Jesus. Corruptions remain, imperfections remain, and so there is a war to be fought against the sinful flesh, But none who call Jesus Lord sincerely will go on to live a life marked by perpetual disobedience. On the contrary, all who have Jesus as Lord really and truly will live a life marked by obedience and they will progress in it. Now, there is another question that must be addressed before we conclude. 
given all that has been said about obedience. And the question is this, are we justified? That is to say, are we declared innocent and not guilty? Are we made right before God by faith in Christ alone or by our obedience? Given everything that has been said about the necessity of obedience in the Christian life, are we justified by faith in Christ alone or are we in some way justified and made right with God by our obedience. Some, after hearing all of this talk about the necessity of obedience, might wonder, is it our obedience that saves us then? So I wonder if you could first of all understand the question and why it is an important question to ask. If it is true that obedience is necessary, then is it our obedience to Christ that in some way saves us? Many have erred in the answer to this question. The answer must be firm and definitive, by no means. In no way are we justified by our obedience. In no way are we saved and made right with God by our obedience. And brothers and sisters, I am pleading with you to never forget this. We are made right before God by the grace of God alone and through faith in Christ alone. It is impossible to be justified before God by our obedience, and for three main reasons. One, do not forget that we are all born in sin. We were born with Adam's guilt imputed to us and with a corrupted nature. Obedience on its own cannot fix that problem. We were born in sin. We were born with Adam's guilt imputed to us and with a corrupted nature. Obedience cannot fix that problem. Only Jesus can. He atoned for sins on the cross. He lived a perfect life so that He has a righteousness of His own to give to those who come to Him. And He has sent forth a Spirit to regenerate sinners, to heal their corruption. Two, we ourselves have committed many sins already. This means that we are all lawbreakers. We are guilty sinners who deserve God's judgment. And no amount of obedience today or tomorrow can fix the problem of guilt from past sins. If someone commits murder, he is a murderer, isn't he? The guilt of the crime stays with him even if he is thoroughly resolved to love and to never murder again from that day forward. And even if he were to succeed in this, the, the present and future obedience does not remedy the problem of the past crime. He is a murderer and he is guilty and condemned as one. Because it has been done. The crime has been committed. Obedience, present and future, cannot fix the problem of past sin. And so it is with us. You have already violated God's law and thought, word and deed, over and over again. You have a problem with guilt. And so do I. And present and future obedience cannot fix that problem. Three, it is impossible to be justified before God by our obedience because... The obedience we offer up to God now is tainted by many imperfections. We do not always obey. And even when we do obey, we find that our obedience is impure. Perhaps our motives are wrong. Perhaps our love for God and others is less than it should be. We don't live up to the standard that Christ brought before us as the summary of God's moral law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Do we ever do that perfectly? No, even when we obey God's commandments, 
by, let's say, coming to worship on the Lord's Day according to the first and second commandment. Even then, we don't bring God the worship that He really deserves. Our obedience is always lacking. And so we cannot be justified before God by our obedience. Brothers and sisters, we must know this. We are not saved by obedience. Obedience, or good works, cannot be the reason or the ground of our salvation. We are justified before God through faith and in Christ alone because He has atoned for sins. He lived a righteous life so that He has a righteousness to give as a gift to those who come to Him by faith. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who makes us whole. This He does for all who trust in Him sincerely. And so what then is the relationship between this faith and obedience? The answer is really simple, brothers and sisters. It's already been stated, but it needs to be stated directly. True faith, true faith in Christ, will always be accompanied by obedience. True faith in Christ will always be accompanied by obedience. We obey because we have been forgiven. We obey because we have been cleansed. We obey because we have been regenerated and renewed. We obey because we love God. And we know that we love Him only because He first loved us. We obey, brothers and sisters, not to be saved, but because God has saved us. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has adopted us as His own. How could we not obey Him? If Jesus is truly our Savior and Lord, how could we not obey Him? You see, this is the relationship between faith and obedience or justification and obedience. The two always go together, but it is so very important to understand which one is the ground of our, founda- of our salvation. The ground of our salvation, the foundation for it, you, you see, is Jesus Christ and His work done for us. We are saved as we come to Him by faith. And the two always go together, as I have just explained. Because one who has been saved, and one who has Jesus as Savior, is going to have Him as Lord, having been renewed and regenerated by Him. I have one last question to address. How can we know for sure that we are true disciples of Jesus, and not false professors? How can you and I, Know for sure that we are true disciples of Jesus and not false professors. You know, just by asking the question, I'm, uh, I'm, in, I, I'm implying uh, that we can know for sure. And in fact, uh, throughout the history of the church, some have said that we can never know for sure. In fact, this was the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the days of the Reformation. They were adamantly opposed to this idea that anyone can ever know for sure. And the reason for that is is quite obvious and clear. It's because they had a distorted doctrine of justification and still do. Concerning the question that was just asked Are we justified by faith in Christ alone or by works? The Roman Catholic Church would say it is by works also. We must have faith in Jesus, but Jesus just makes it possible for us to obey. And now we must obey in order to be saved. That was the teaching of Rome in the days of the Reformation and up to this present day. 
It is a distortion of the doctrine of justification, and it is a severe distortion, so much so that I would say the gospel of Jesus Christ is obliterated by it. It's no longer good news. It's no longer good news. Tell me, brothers and sisters, would you consider this to be good news? Jesus died for your sins. You must come to Him. And when you come to Him, He makes it possible for you to obey. But whether or not you go to heaven, that, that's on you. You must obey. Try that for a time and see how it goes. See how, much, see, see how much that seems like good news to you after you live according to that system for a time. You will find yourself to be very discouraged. I would have no hope or joy at all in Christ if that is what I believe, because I know that I daily violate God's law and thought, word, and deed. And thus enters the unbiblical doctrine of purgatory, I think. Because, well, you'll get a second chance. Well, nowhere is that found in Scripture. In fact, the Scriptures say there will be no second chance. There will be death, and then the judgment, and then hellfire for those not in Christ. And so it is a complete distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is also why Rome would teach that no one can have assurance unless you've been given some sort of miraculous and special vision. There's a term for that that I can't remember right now. But the Reformers, and we today would say, no, people can be sure that they have Christ as Lord, and that they have a true, uh, incredible profession of faith. Uh, there can be this sense of assurance, and there are at least two questions that must be asked in order to get at this. One, I would ask you, are you truly trusting in Jesus as He has offered to you in the Gospel? Stated differently, do you agree that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you understand the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin to trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins? You could probably see that all of these questions that I have just posed to you have to do with the condition of your mind and your heart. How can a person know for sure that they are a true disciple of Jesus and not a false professor? I suppose the first thing they must do is look inward to examine their mind and heart and ask, Am I sincere? That's very subjective, isn't it? It's an important question to ask, and you must ask, ask it, but it is rather subjective. It has to do with you examining your own mind and heart. Am I sincere? But there is another question to ask, and this one is more concrete, measurable, and less subjective. And here is the question. Is there any external evidence that the faith that is in your mind and heart is true? Stated differently, are you producing good and godly fruit? You remember that Jesus had something to say about good and bad fruit in the Sermon on the Plain. A good tree is going to produce what? Good fruit. A bad or diseased tree is going to produce diseased and bad fruit. And so this teaching was fresh on the minds of all who listened to Jesus. And so, I ask you, is there, is there anything external? Is there external evidence that the faith that is in your mind and heart is true? Are you producing good and godly fruit? Or to put it yet another way, is your profession of faith accompanied by a change? A turning from sin and a new obedience to the commandments of the Lord? The Apostle John teaches this when he says in 1 John 2.3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. That's one of my favorite texts to, to address this issue or the question of assurance. How, how can I know for sure that I really know the Lord? How can I know for sure that I am a true disciple of Jesus and not a false professor? Well, John addresses that head on in 1 John 2.3. And by this we know, in other words, by this we become confident that we know the Lord 
that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. So the habitual keeping of the commandments of God, as was described earlier, is an evidence that our faith is true. We are able to know that we know the Lord by examining the fruit of our lives. By examining the fruit of our lives and seeing that it is good helps us to know that indeed our hearts have been made good by the Lord, by the grace of Christ, and by the Holy Spirit. John is addressing that question of assurance here, and he does so very clearly. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. So then, obedience to Christ does not bring us salvation, but it does help us to be sure of our salvation. For it is an evidence that our profession of faith is true. Brothers and sisters, to have Jesus as Savior, one must confess that He is Lord, and Lords are to be obeyed, especially this one. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in Heaven, we do thank You for Christ, and the fact that He came and lived an obedient life, and suffered a brutal death, not because He deserved it, but to pay for the sins of others. We thank You for the accomplishment of our redemption, a work that was done so long ago. We thank You that it is finished. We thank You also that You, by Your grace, have called us to faith in Christ. You have, you have made it such that the Gospel has been preached to us. And more than this, the Holy Spirit of God has called us inwardly. You are so very gracious and kind to us to have accomplished this redemption for us and to have applied it to us in time. God, I do pray for all who have heard this message today that they would run to Christ and cling to Him and that they would go on living in obedience to Him out of gratitude for all that has been done. We confess to You, O God, that we are a weak and needy people. We need You to sustain us in every way. We need You to cause us to progress in our sanctification. And, what, and yet we know that You have called us to pursue holiness in this life. And so do help us to pursue it with all that is in us, not by our own strength, but by the strength You supply. I pray for those who have heard this message that You would also call those who do not yet have true and authentic faith in Christ. Lord, help them to turn from their sin humbly. Help them to acknowledge that they can bring nothing, but that they must run to Christ and trust in Him entirely. God, I pray that You would do this work in many. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.